Space Burgers, and welcome to another pandemic episode of The Space Cave. A big warg to all of you out there, hopefully a much-needed one, as you tuck yourself away in a cave deep in the furthest reaches of our known universe, safely away from all the chaos and insanity, which, oddly enough, feels like sedentary isolation. Uh, But hopefully you're managing it well, whatever you need to do, and hopefully this provides you some comfort as you do it. And hopefully you're staying safe and healthy. Uh, I appreciate you supporting the show and listening to it. Uh, The show, as you know, is made possible by contributions from listeners just like you. So if you go to patreon.com, search David Huntsberger, you can help out this show and make it run without ads. I sincerely appreciate it. I'll try to put in as much stuff as possible over the course of the coming months. Uh, There's an episode in there right now with my guest today. Um, which is an episode of her podcast. It's about an hour and a half. It involves questions and things like that that I don't normally talk about. So if that sounds of interest to you, check it out. And a couple of things before we get started. One, a big thanks to Yoichi Shiga, friend of the show, a guest previously when I was in San Francisco. We sat down and had a very uh, stimulating conversation. I really enjoyed it. And uh, he's been helpful. And in, in this, I mentioned in an episode or two past, that, um, you know, the first beginning of this, you might be just kind of processing it. But if you if you have the energy and uh, the uh, the whatever you would call it, the wherewithal or the ambition to do it, you can you can turn your energy toward being helpful. And he's done just that and um, gotten involved with a thing called splitthecheck.org, which if you're getting uh, stimulus money and you don't necessarily need it and you'd like to pass it on to people who do need it, Go to splitthecheck.org. They can set it up for you so that you don't have to see the money come into your account and then have that deliberation of whether or not you really do want to follow through with getting rid of it. That's the psychology behind it, that it's a little easier to do it ahead of time rather than see it in their account and be like, ooh, that looks pretty nice. So if you'd like to do that and do something nice, splitthecheck.org. Thanks to Yoichi for being a, a great representative of this show. I knew people involved with this show would do great things. Proud of you. Great job, Space Burgers. And the final thing before we start, I started a, a new podcast with my friend Wendy Molyneux, who's a writer from Bob's Burgers. She's as funny as they get. And uh, we just did this real silly 30-minute episode. Um, it's six episodes that are up right now, sort of a season, if you will. It has nothing to do with anything. It's just a nice little escape of pure silliness. If that sounds at all interesting, check it out. And uh, I'll probably put an episode up in the Patreon just uh, to give you a little sampling. If you're like, ooh, I'd, I'd try more of that. So, uh, but you can get them all on iTunes and Stitcher and wherever else you get podcasts. Uh, search These Are Those Tapes. You'll be there. You'll find it. I hope you like it. Okay. My guest today has been just a, a very kind person in my knowledge of her, which goes back several years now um, from when I would go to Boise, Idaho. 
She would always stop by with something nice to say or a gift, or she gave me some cool books. I read Packing for Mars. Thanks to her, she gave me that book. And uh, she's just a very kind person. Her husband, Paul, also very sweet. And uh, I did her podcast a while ago. They had me over and gave me more gifts, as always. And they come out to shows, and they're just very nice people. And she's been studying a lot about uh, polyvagal theory and neuroscience. And you'll see in this conversation, I don't know that I fully understand it, but I think it's pretty fascinating. I hope you enjoy it. And here is my conversation with Heidi Juniper. Okay. Heidi Juniper. Is your last, is your real last name Juniper? I never, I've never asked you that. No, I was born a Clark. Okay. And then I married Paul and he's a DeCourcy. And so we hyphenated, but I just go by Heidi Juniper. Okay. Um, uh, so Clark and DeCourcy. So Juniper didn't spawn out of that. This was just your chosen um juniper was my parents heidi and juniper was were my parents um compromise because my dad and mom were 60s hippies they met at stanford in the 60s okay and my dad wanted to name me last powdered snow because i was (laughs) born (laughs) i was born in june in laramie wyoming and there was this little last powdering of snow in the mountains and one of my cousins came to my mom. I think he was eight. And he was like, Aunt Bev, you're not going to let Uncle Jimmy name the baby that. And I think she said no. So instead, <laughs> they named me Heidi after the the girl from the book, mm-hmm. the girl who loves mountains. And then Juniper was my dad's favorite tree. Oh, cool. I'm happy with it. Yeah. yeah awesome. Uh, yeah. And then you sent me. So we have communicated before uh, in a podcast setting on your show which uh, is called Heidi's How to Make a Podcast 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 or something like that. Is that right? Very close. Heidi makes a podcast, podcast, podcast. Okay, gotcha. Which is <laughs> which is the tip of the cap to uh, Maria Bamford's special, 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 right? Right. Okay. Right. right, right. And I only realized afterwards, special, special, special makes sense. Podcast, podcast, podcast doesn't. But that's kind of the spirit of it. I'm kind of figuring it out as I go. Yeah. And how you've, you, I feel like I know a little bit of your process through it. I don't like when people use the word journey. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Your trajectory, your trajectory through it has been interesting because... Also, I'm not supposed to call myself a, a mental health advocate. Your presence is that right? That's another. Oh no no no! I I don't like when comedians list themselves as like <laughs> comedian, mental health advocate. I just think that's silly. But that's my own thing. You can call yourself whatever you like, and I feel like uh, you you have some tangible um, footing in the mental health space, and more so like comedians that talk about their own mental health then go i'm a mental health advocate i i guess what anyone is everyone that gets on stage and says hey i i feel like existence is weird is in some way validating to everyone else that it's okay to have a mental state that you're trying to improve or uh um alter in some way and so i guess that would make anyone and everyone in some way a mental health advocate and or you're a suppressor of that if you're one of those people like just put smile feel better then you are not but i would say we're all kind of largely as a society getting a little better at understanding that everyone processes it differently and that we want everyone to feel good about who they are and how they go about uh, approaching the world and you sent me a couple clips on 
brain stuff like um, neuro- neuroscience type things and then the second one was less brain related the polyvagal is that how you say polyvagal vagal polyvagal theory which th- when we get into mental health uh, which I think is in, uh, pretty critical during something like this people stuck at home during a pandemic Right, um, right. It felt to me, it felt a little out of my scope. When, uh, like, when people, uh, when I was watching that video, I felt like there's a diagram of the spine and there's this sort of, <laughs> <laughs> there's a breakdown. Uh-huh. But I was like, I don't know how this ties in scientifically necessarily, but I could understand some of the reasoning and logic behind it. So I was curious um, how you break that down. How I break down polyvagal theory and how it's relevant to mental health. Yeah, like so the to give a, a crude synopsis of the breakdown, they were kind of it was split into a sixths, uh, which there was a picture of a spine, and then to the right of it was kind of n- not a chart, but breaking the top, uh, middle, and lower section of that into. Um, the way we process things, say starting with like a trauma and then our brain goes left or right. So it was almost like a flow chart, it seemed like. Right, 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 right. You got the core of it. Okay. You know what? I'm not sure of your question. Also, I'm really thrown because we haven't referenced beer yet. (laughs) Oh, right. Yeah, I haven't been uh, having any beer during this. Um, It just feels like with uncertain... um, financial times ahead and or um recording these during the day and i I don't feel that jovial during this i like having beer because we're in the same room we're sharing it maybe i should incorporate it into these zoom calls that we could go and source it but then then you're asking people to leave their house and or have something delivered which doesn't seem essential so i i've uh, you're not feeling the beer vibe I just don't feel like it's critical. I don't feel like it's worth venturing into a store and or asking someone to bring it here. Um, maybe I'm wrong. I mean, if people well, listening- I did. I did show up with some double spiced chai because oh, I'm getting okay. over a cold. Yeah, I'm a big fan of tea. Cool. I think you like tea, right? So maybe uh, tea could be the new thing. No, I don't think I'll turn it into a tea podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no excuse me no referencing journeys yeah. <laughs> no tea uh you can reference whatever you like i just think that uh it gets words that get used a lot uh to me for whatever reason i think i've always been this way get tedious to me very quickly and i i, I just think that if there is some sort of societal assimilation it helps to at least attempt to be aware of it i'm sure that we're all using same cadences and similar um, diction these days because it's just that's where we live in and we're exposed to it a lot uh, but I try to be somewhat aware of it just I think that right. it can be so limiting when if the world becomes everyone sharing the same memes then is as the as the concept of originality been lost and I think that ties into the yeah. second video you sent me which was the the separated brain with uh, kind of this false uh thing that's come back around a little bit these days with the difference between the hemispheres the left being more like rigid and the right being fanciful and imaginative and uh, it's always interesting to either read or hear about new research on that or new perspectives on it and i really love yeah, that yeah. video because it was animated and really cool i know right i love that yeah yeah i was hoping you would enjoy that Oh, I love yeah, that's it. Ian yeah. McGilchrist and the Divided Brain, and it's an awesome animation. It's uh, it's informed by neuroscience, but it's got a lot of philosophy in it. I think he's really drawn to philosophy. He's also 
I don't know if this is wise to say, but it seems like sexism permeates his work. Oh, really? Yeah. And uh, like my mentor, Bonnie Badenoch is a huge fan of his and kind of friendly with him, has interviewed him and adores him. And she didn't even notice. Mm -hmm. And um, so in preparing to talk to you, I was looking back at his book and I just, I was rereading the intro and on page two, there was this weird thing that threw me and I'm like, I, uh, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if I can reread this, even though I think the conclusions are really interesting, but I'm sorry, David, I never answered your first question because I didn't understand it, but it has to do with this polyvagal theory and the anatomy behind it. What does that have to do with like mental health and the situation we're in? Is that the question? Yeah, like I guess breaking down the flow chart um, in the simplest and (laughs) mostly inaccurate terms, if you have trauma happening at the top. So so let's say we're looking at the spine in profile and at the top is the brain. And then if we're looking at this partitioned off into a line down the center and then a line a third of the way down and a line two thirds of the way down. So it's leaving us with sort of six spaces that things right. can go to and then right. so the neural circuits that govern the fight flight response and the shock response and social engagement and mm-hmm. then some permutations based on that yeah right and that to me was hard to comprehend because i, I didn't see a yeah. direct attachment i just saw like a person circling things and saying this happens here and this happens here but i was like well where is that what does that mean i could understand the flow of it that like so to put it in, maybe this will help uh, ask the question. If I, so this pandemic, say everyone's brain is receiving this uh, and storing these kind of quiet questions somewhere. What's the future going to be? What's my future going to be? Am I going to be able to do the things I wanted to do? What's this going to mean for my retirement, for my children, for all of my friends and family? Who's going to live through this? All these kind of really anxiety inducing questions that we're all trying to ignore yeah. and just like yeah. be calm. The the polyvagal theory would place them into a thing and then place them place that as the input data into your head. And then the way you respond to it, whether it's, and now I'm blanking on the receptive things like, um, Oh, like relationships to it. And so down to the left would be, do you compartmentalize that? Do you internalize it? Do you ignore it? Do you store it away? How do, what are the first two steps for like either going left or right? Where do we want to take this sort of trauma? Oh, right, right, right. Okay. I'm remembering the video. Gosh. Okay. So I've spent the last couple of weeks just mainlining Steve Porges podcasts and videos in preparation for this. And oh my goodness, is that guy um, hard to understand? Uh, he loves words like phylogenetic, <laughs> like, <laughs> and just throws them out in conversation. Like everyone understands what that means. Um, and, but his theory is so life-changing. It's been very motivating for me to dig in to try to understand it. And that animated video, which I'll have to, uh, well, I guess you have the link for the show notes. People might be curious what this is. I actually yeah. found this five minute video, which is, um, you know, it's not fully animated, but it has kind of animation elements, or yeah. at least it has like li- like it it has drawings and it shows the person writing. So it's more it's so much more dynamic and understandable than anything else I'd found. Uh-huh. I didn't realize that it's still pretty incomprehensible, but it makes sense because polyvagal theory is kind of that way. 
Um, but I'm remembering that this video, so polyvagal theory is really based around neurophysiology and the importance of the nervous system. And in the video that I sent to you, um, there's this discussion about how our body prepares us to, um, well, how our body is constantly scanning for cues of threat and danger because we are fundamentally animals. And that, I mean, even that, just knowing that we inhabit, you know, I mean, people in comedy will call them meat bodies. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a common cultural idea that we are kind of a frame with meat stuck to it, you know, yeah. and a brilliant head on top. So we're kind of like a head on stilts, but no, our actual bodies are keeping us alive. And, you know. Well, yeah, our brain was, uh, you know, among the final things to develop. And if you're going back right. to like the primordial ooze of uh, single cell organisms that, you know, really just be kind of uh, an eye and a brain stem early, yeah. early on. And then so our, our reactions, our primitive instincts to when you say the body, does that mean like the receptor, little fine hairs on our skin, things like that? Um, the body. Because I'm thinking that w- the only way we really perceive anything goes back to that original state of us being eyes with a brainstem or, or the primitive, like the reptilian brain. It's like eat that, run from that, hide, get a weapon, whatever it may be. Like very simple, duck. You know, th- the way our instincts can react so quickly if you hit something with a hammer yeah. and a spark happens and our eyes close and sometimes you'll feel a spark hit your eyelid and you're kind of like, way to go, eyes. If I were right, making right, that right. decision, I would have kept watching like, what's coming for my eye? Oh, no. But because right. we have these primitive instincts that just close our eyes really quickly, we kind of, we defend ourselves. Right, right, right. And so that would be whatever organs are sensing the, the danger like so eyes would be one of them and then you know our visceral organs also detecting things and then yeah and then sending that message to the brainstem yeah so i think that 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 is sort of the 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 primary mechanism of that survival response but it's just fascinating to me that we don't realize that even if we're not consciously thinking about survival i mean right now we are Mm -hmm. because of covid but most of the time just think we tend to think we're mortal right which is so interesting because i've been reading rereading the plague because of your your at your recommendation oh nice yeah and so we uh so we do kind of wander around thinking unless there's some you know very detectable emergency we're just immortal and we're not aware that our bodies are constantly um and by the body i guess i mean the visceral organs in combination with the nervous system and the brainstem are constantly alert to signs of danger and threat and then shifting our physiological state in response to that so that's what that those diagrams are about wait so i always i i think my thinking um, like our, our organs, if we're talking like liver, kidneys, lung, heart, the, the vital main organs, uh, you know, communicate to our brain kind of slowly. I was really getting into optogenetics years ago because like the vagus nerve ties into that and can get these signals. If we don't know that our pancreas is in trouble until we're like, ow, something hurts. Whereas it might've been sending that signal to the brain for weeks, very quietly, like yeah. something, something's off in sector three, go check it out. And we don't know it until like it's red alert, uh, uh, 
but I think of it as like a car, which I know is inaccurate, but we still are the brain really for the car. The headlights work and operate, but the engine just pumping and metabolizing fuel that we put through it those things like the the engine the battery the tires moving aren't thinking about things they aren't feeling things it's still us with our just eyes to brainstem is how i think about it yeah it's hard for me to comprehend how like the kidney or something like that would would be tied into your um like I guess just fears, just general. If you find yourself in a situation where you're like, Ooh, <laughs> are there wolves out in the woods? Talk to me, kidney. I, I don't know that I would make that, uh, connection. Yeah. 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 Oh, I love it. I love it. Okay. Um, let me sense where to start with that. Um, well, we do have like lots and lots. Oh God. I hate how I started that question. That sentence. <laughs> I use the word like so much more than I realize. It's extremely irritating to you, you, podcast and record yourself and listen back and realize how how badly you speak. Are you over that now? <laughs> I don't really listen to it. I think I would oh, go and say, yeah, yeah, I think I, which probably comes across in the recording that like, boy, you could have edited that out, buddy. And like, eh, would have <laughs> required me listening. So I'd prefer it just unfiltered and no one really likes their voice no one likes the way they speak and uh, i think we we can get a little better at you know it, comedians never want to listen to their sets because when you do you find that oh i don't realize how how much i maybe tick my lips or yeah maybe i say like or uh or whatever it may be yeah. there's and yet when you see something or someone that's so refined at it there's a lack of personality there so i think our little mm. idiosyncrasies in our speak in the way we speak uh can sometimes have some value obviously it's annoying if someone says like every other word but i don't yeah. i don't feel like you've been doing that at all oh well i i tend to uh and the more and the more i get caught in my thoughts the more i use that word so dan please cut it out please dan oh <laughs> dan, dan pritchard dan pritchard sorry yeah, i thought you were talking to pritchard. me i was like oh right yeah i do refer to dan on this sometimes dan if you are listening you were just addressed personally i hope dan still listens all the way through and then he'll 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 tune you up make it sound real, <laughs> real <laughs> smooth. Be the test. but so what was <laughs> happening there like as you're getting into your discussion your brain is second guessing yourself so this is now going down and left in the flow chart into these places where the brain is flight or fight kind of determining what to do there and, uh, and you were you were in a moment of flight i think they're unable right. to go Synth- into your synthetic thing. activation yeah yeah i think you're right right the, okay so i will address that first and then go back to the the organs and then the concept of the brains being in control okay unless you decide you want to take it somewhere else at some point and then i'll just follow no i'm fascinated by this i i think that again i I, my place at coming at this is it i i don't fully understand it from a scientific perspective and so like i'm fascinated to know how those two worlds mesh yeah okay well so in the flow chart, when you're talking about things moving to the right or to the left, I remember, I think that in that video, they use red for part of it and green for part of it. And it's talking about the engagement of these different systems, um, like the sympathetic nervous system, which 
is what governs fight flight. It's also and that's it's also what governs play and exercise. So it's the part of your nervous system that helps you rev up, and that when you're um, using the sympathetic nervous system for defense, is what Stephen would say. When you detect a threat, you go into fight flight. But when you sense safety, you would use the sympathetic nervous system for like play and exercise. So then on that chart, they have one side is red for defense and one is green for um, more, oh, optimal. That's a big word that Stephen loves. More optimal experiencing. It's healthier and because you just don't. <coughs> Sorry about that. You, you know, we have these bodies that keep us alive, but we don't want to feel like our lives are in danger all the time. So if we feel like this imminent threat all the time, it's just very stressful and it's exhausting. So the defense systems are things we want to use um, rarely. And um, so, and then I guess logically, it might be helpful to know at this juncture that the other half of the autonomic nervous system which just means automatic yeah i was um, gonna happening. say like my aff affiliation with this is from i think this was like a psychology class the the autonomic nervous system so when you were saying sympathetic nervous system i think that's a little new to me and all of this is so fascinating to me because it's like sometimes people refer to it as a soft science because you can't you can't put it in a beaker and predict the outcome and say this exists and this is exists these aren't concrete things these are concepts in a lot and mostly uh and so like I, being told like the nervous system the autonomic nervous system i remember this thing they brought up which was premature ejaculation which sounds <laughs> sounds sort of far afield this has never happened in a porch's video he's never talked about premature ejaculation so, but they exciting. brought it up that like um when the guy's you know nervous like am i going to perform well not perform well oh my god i can't believe this is happening whatever the fears and or excitements would be it's sort of like the rpms would be going way up and the autonomic nervous system would be like hey we got to cool you down we got to get this dopamine in your brain an orgasm is the quickest way to do that so there so the thing that you're hoping <gasps> is the least um, optimal outcome is the thing that your brain goes, this will solve it. And so it's this <laughs> self-defeating pattern that makes sense from that perspective of like the autonomic being there to like, so sympathetic, how does it tie in to, would it be a third branch or would it be a, a similar to the autonomic? Oh, the sympathetic is one half of the autonomic nervous system. Okay. So there's sympathetic, which revs you up and parasympathetic, which sort of calms you back down. Okay. And the um let's see the other things you talked about were um our body letting us know that danger is happening and um you know like the kidney not seeming that intelligent but actually um our our bodily organs are pretty intelligent even even you know like a thing that um Dan Siegel likes to talk about who is the founder of relational neuroscience. Well, he's a founder of sometimes the, I guess there's a broader umbrella called relational neuroscience that's very closely tied into to his work. And he's a psychiatrist out of UCLA, but he and some colleagues sort of founded the field of interpersonal neurobiology. And those two terms are roughly uh, synonymous. And I forgot the point, but it's going to come back to me. 
<laughs> oh, he talks. So, so, so he is this guy who loves to talk about what is the definition of the mind. And if, if you were to have him on your podcast, I guarantee he would tell the story about going to a conference and asking all these people who are in the, the brain sciences, what is the mind and nobody having a definition because that's a story he loves to tell. But his understanding is that the mind isn't just the skull brain it's okay. embodied and so it involves the heart brain and the and the gut brain and then there's a, a lot of neurons in both of those organs and then the other thing that he always likes to talk about is that um our minds aren't just our individual wiring but or um like it's very hard to talk about a single human mind because it takes multiple humans to make a mind and that our minds are developing relationships. So that's, those are his two big things, relational and embodied. And the other part that you were talking about, about, you know, it's seeming like, um, you know, our brains are really driving the show. But I think that's, I think that's our misconception. I think that, especially if you mean like the prefrontal cortex and that sort of conscious experience of the world, I think that's just this little tiny tip of the iceberg of what's really happening. And that we think we're in charge, but I think a lot of decisions get made in the body and then we just make up a story afterwards. Well, um, how would that tie to... <clears throat> but wouldn't, I mean, equivalent, like equating that to uh, the evolution chart and we would look at simians or early primates and say like they have similarities to us, but maybe lacking that frontal lobe, the thing that would allow us potentially the, the a higher feeling of consciousness and or reason or rationale or you know we create films and subjective things that might only appeal to that very front right of the brain which is oh i think that was a fable that was an uh, analogy about this what that was saying it wasn't about the the man finding his shoe what it was really about was his him finding his childhood and then we, you know we have the brain to be able to go oh interesting whereas as far as we know no chimps or anything would have that ability and or even the patience to sit there and watch it so don't those things correlate more so to like a, a determination of that as opposed to like when we say that humans can't do that or that we are this other part of our brain we can see our other part of our brain in other animals that don't have it i'm not sure what you're are you asking a question I'm just I'm just curious like where what the the, the thinking is behind that that we, our consciousness like that our frontal lobes are just the tip of the iceberg as to who we are oh, uh -huh. that, that like the the chimps existing without it um, have very very different personalities than us different behavioral patterns so we can kind of see who we would be without those frontal lobes in a weird way right right that's interesting and that that is um, a transformative difference because we've obviously we've terraformed the planet. We've changed. Yeah. We, I mean, we've initiated a, a massive extinction. We've gotten uh, so carried away. Yeah. With our, our comprehension or search of what this existence or consciousness is that, that we, we, we do under, undertake di way different and much more catastrophic sort of um, behaviors than a group of chimps ever would. Right, right. 
but motivated by our search for what it all means or just motivated by uh, our biological urges. Yeah, good question. You know, I think, I mean, I think like you can see humans as sort of like the most um, both successful in a sense and most catastrophically destructive invasive species of all yeah of all earthly existence but we also look at how we treat like stray pets we grab them up and we spay and neuter them yeah what would the planet be like ecosystem without us i mean something would evolve out of it it wouldn't just remain the current megafauna that exists you know but bears would do their best to make a trillion bears and then there'd be some weird evolution of a bear that maybe it stood up on hind legs or something but there is that biological component of like let's make more of ourselves and it almost seems like humans when you think of like someone that gets to be an, an elder they revile that aspect of humanity like ugh look at us we're just these things that make more of each other Ugh. yeah and that they're more um in touch with that with that thing which i would at least in my um, limited knowledge of this associate with the frontal lobes the kind of it seems like that is where a lot of those sort of questions come from of what is this why are we here or what is consciousness all, all of the the big questions seem to originate from from that so I guess right. my question is how how if it's not that then what is it? <coughs> I'm sorry. What's that? Say that again. I would say if my it's... my question is if it's not that, which I would say you could kind of t- prove, you know, scientifically prove that, that our frontal lobe differentiates us from other animals. If it's right. not that, even our closest, yeah, 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 um, yeah our closest common, yeah, yeah. Like, like apes and mm-hmm. stuff. Our DNA relatives uh, right. are very similar, you know, 98% similar and yet different brain structure. And maybe they are having these sort of same philosophical questions and the inability to really communicate them verbally. Or maybe they're operating at a higher level where they just uh, communicate with each other very intuitively, you know, through body language. But that seems somewhat unlikely. It seems like we, right. have, we have the highest level of communication skills and ability to think and process. So my question is, is if it's not that, if it's not the frontal lobe, then what is it? Do you think it's all the the organs operating together as this kind of collective consciousness? Mm. No, I think, I mean, I think you're right that that's our biggest difference. And we're certainly really obsessed with that difference and how, how we're different from other species and then by definition that they're worse than us. Mm-hmm. Um, I think... I mean, as a human being, I'm pretty attached to the capacity to reflect and to think creatively and, yeah, to read books and to uh, learn new ideas. I mean, I think the animal world, I'm not sure that it would be, for instance, possible for um any given species to you know have a have a threat like covid yeah and then immediately communicate to everyone on every continent that this is what's happening and this is what we need to do maybe but like i 
I think I'm being influenced by you. I'm thinking a David Hunsberger you thought would be, is there a bee dance that would communicate that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, there probably is. <laughs> We're just, we, the bees have their own version of a, like a Twitter or any sort of social presence that can get the word out, but you know, the, they have to go do it in a more analog, direct B to B kind of thing. Um, but maybe they, but maybe they could do it, but then they couldn't, how would they cross the ocean? Like they couldn't convey to bees on a different continent. Yeah. And they certainly couldn't, certainly they couldn't have an argument about it being a, a conspiracy theory. Like that wouldn't happen. <laughs> we have different things that have evolved at different times in human history, like writing or something maybe that took place in South America and China roughly at the same time. But those are very slow evolving. They could be a, a crossover of, say, 15 years or 100 years that lapped over in just a small portion of that time frame for per continent whereas like yeah the pandemic is we all know within a day the bees yeah i don't think there would be that natural thing where they just suddenly all knew on different continents because and maybe maybe i'm wrong we're like yeah there's this weird thing where bees the world over suddenly all at once start flying north or something like that maybe they just have it <laughs> <laughs> like intuitively in them but the, well, you know, as you're talking about this, like the thing that keeps coming to my mind about humans and our difference from all other animals, I keep overwhelmingly being drawn back to something I read a year or two ago in a book by Heidi Rabin, who's, I believe, a philosopher or possibly a religious studies professor. Maybe that's right, because she's big into Spinoza. But she has this giant book on the myth of free will, and she brings in philosophy and neuroscience and psychology, all of this different stuff to make a really compelling argument that, oh God, and people are going to hate to hear this, <laughs> but from a, from a technical, from a, from a close in view, our idea that we can spontaneously do things not constrained by either our biology or our environment is a myth mm -hmm. that there's not there's not a homunculus inside of us that's separate from everything that we've ever experienced um well i mean um another guy david eagleman talks about this a lot that um he he thinks that i mean he's a neuroscientist he thinks that free will is still an open question but um and it, you know you have to of course define it before you can say if it exists or not but that um, culturally our idea of it is clearly wrong because you're not going to spontaneously just go and murder someone yeah. because your brain just wouldn't let you. And so he says, we, we walk around thinking that we all have the same brain and I just used my brain to make really amazing decisions. And Charles Manson just used his brain badly. Yeah, but well, you've talked about that a lot. Oh gosh, that's a good, you're a good person to mention this too because you've <laughs> done you've done stand up about this. You've done these brilliant things about this about you know being trapped inside the brain that tells you what to do and you sort of have to obey. I'm but fascinated her, by it. I think I'm sorry. Continue. Well, the connection with Heidi Rabin, <clears throat> I got distracted because her her larger discussion is about free will, but she talks about how um, that even though we don't necessarily have what we think of as free will, we do have incredible flexibility of responses to, um, to our environments and to each other. And so that 
if you look at other species, uh, they can't stray from their, uh, the bad word would be programming, but from their instincts, that yeah. there's, um, a, there's some flexibility in their behavior, but a bee is going to be, <laughs> and an antelope is going to antelope. And um, so, you know, and like, there are these sort of, but when you say that, like, but, well, there's, you know, like, I saw this documentary about this lioness who was going around killing lioness, ba- other lionesses' babies, but basically that other species conform to the moral laws of that species. And we're, we have such flexibility that we can do grotesque harm. So we can go way outside that original sort of ape parameters and do things like have you know concentration camps and factory farming and just things that to any other animal would be unthinkable yeah i mean we also are doing things like you were saying where we're we're taking care of stray animals and i think compassion in the animal kingdom is more widespread than we understand well i was going to ask that when you said are pretty when you said uh, bees are going to be or antelope going to antelope, you know, if a video will get passed around uh, yeah. whether it's like uh, you see a bear cub struggling to cross the road and then maybe people get out and they're kind of stopping traffic and then there comes mama bear and she grabs up the little cubs and they cross the road and we're like, oh, good, they made it. There's an inherent like desire for them to cross that road. Now say a bear is coming down to get a drink of water out of a creek and it stops and like across the creek or maybe up the bank a little bit to its right it sees a fisherman he's like oh hello now now maybe the bear looks and the fisherman is teaching a little kid and he's kind of patting him on the head like good one buddy and the kid's casting does that bear have the ability to be like you know what today you guys enjoy your life because not every bear attacks there and Mm -hmm. is it solely dependent on when they're hungry or when they're not and say Mm -hmm. that bear comes down and kills both the people is there a feeling when it's kind of like nourishing its system and has enough calories all of a sudden that it snaps out of it and goes i wish i hadn't done that damn it why did i do that oh you stupid bear instincts you made me do something i hate because then you get i guess into the notion of a soul why do some bears choose to do it and why do others do not is there good and evil you know all those concepts are always at play there because it's it will be easy to say every bear is going to do the exact same thing in that situation based on how hungry it is but i i would reject that completely i would just say it's dependent on the bear and the and in the situation it's put in and we are the ones that have like an overwhelming sense of that at all times we always feel like well we're the ones caging all these animals and putting them in zoos and we feel bad about it and yet, like, oh, I got to see a monkey in a cage. Isn't this great? We're, we're a walking uh, contradiction at all times in that way. Right. In terms of how, how, how kind we can be and how extraordinary we can be and then how horrible we can be. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, I think, Raven's point is that, um, that, well, I feel afraid to say it because I feel like your invisible listeners are going to be really angry with me. But her idea is that we are we are arguably the least moral of all animal species because, or we at least have the capacity to be the least moral because we have the most flexibility. Yeah. Whereas the other animals, well, like the bear might decide to kill the fisherman or not, but he's not going to take that fisherman's kid and then and then 
make more of them and then enslave them all right you see stuff on like planet earth when it's always like so beautifully narrated by uh david you know like he david is it attenborough attenborough yeah yeah he when he's like they don't like the behavior here and you'll see like one monkey that has been consistently trying to like steal the young from some of the females the whole group of these particular like monkeys will be like get the hell out of here and chasing this monkey and fighting him so there's an ethics there of like i guess it ties into our our scope or the spectrum of what our morals are comprised of and or contained in is enormous you know we have crazed serial killers that build a dungeon in their basement that takes them years and and a, a massive amount of resources and they vow oh, all right fine there i got that built okay next step now i can start kidnapping people and torturing them there people have done things like that that are so calculated and grotesque and then on the other end of it people that were nearly starving because they gave every morsel they could find to other animals and or children or people that desperately needed it maybe a little bit more than they did we have these outrageous you know ends of our spectrum whereas you know like the it seems like other animals are it would be easier to say they are more moral because like it's kill that hiker or not maybe some oh i'm gonna go and uh i know i get my i had sex with that bear lady a few months ago i think if i'm remembering right she might have some kids i could eat them there are bears that go <laughs> do that i mean like, yeah that's not very moral of you bear but maybe that's the furthest end of their spectrum as far as how evil they could be that's pretty evil going and eating your own children Right, right, right. Well, that has to do with Porges and polyvagal theory. Okay. Um, he, like, it, it ties back around. Because um, uh, he talks a lot about this idea of moral veneer and that, well, it's just, I'm trying to think about, like, the things you're saying and how to, how to like, that perspective you're bringing up and what I've sort of absorbed from Steve Porges um, but he would, but sorry, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to, how to bridge that, but about this moral veneer thing, he talks about that we go around making a lot of judgments about people, um, because we're not, I think he would say we're not neurobiologically informed because mm-hmm. <laughs> that's how he talks, <laughs> but that we go around making a lot of judgments about people, not realizing that so much of what everyone does is a a product of processes that are below the level of awareness and to some degree beyond our direct control i mean we sort of have because when when we um you know when we go into fight flight we just become enraged often or you know and then yes there are things you can do to not be a rageaholic and not throw things at people but um those things that drive our behavior aren't we're not just uh writing our own programming coming you know sitting around writing down this is the person i'm going to be and then boom we are um and even the person we want to be is a result of our brains and our bodies and what you know in our our histories um so that so much of what what we who we are and what we're doing is um emergent from and it's from the combination of um, our nervous system, our our, um, our nervous system's responses to the environment, combined with my my mentor would say our implicit experience. 
so that when when things happen, our body has a reaction, and then our our whole sorry our whole system then interprets it uh, through the filter of of our implicit world, so that everything that's ever happened to us. So yeah. not everyone is going to have the same reaction to certain events, but. Um, God, it's really interesting talking to you, David. I've been marinating in all this for weeks because I wanted to do a really good job for you. And none of this has come up. It's very interesting and, and just unexpected. Um, I got so excited, I almost forgot the idea. <laughs> I think oh. it's best. Um, well, to, to kind of like not step back a little bit, but to tie it into something that I have familiarity with. The thing you brought up, like uh, in the uh, in One Headed Beast, I talk about the concept of maybe like pedophiles and people like that, and, and like trying to be sympathetic toward their brain structure, trying to at least understand it or be in some right, way right. Uh, examining it without just being like, "Well, you're a monster." We all do, we all objectively can say that's abhorrent that's terrible behavior we none of us condone it but what do we know about it and the another video you sent the divided brain really kind of brought into the picture like the the frontal lobe things of uh the frontal left kind of more so treating it like the concrete world you know that and I would say people that, that make a lot of money and own things and, and say, this is the world, this is it. It's, it's, it's concrete and it's solid. The frontal right side might be more like, I don't know, there's something I can just feel. There's an intangible, there's something beautiful about the interplay of all of it. Not necessarily that it's poetry or all these things, but something that's a little more intangible. And then you had the end with this great quote that I wrote down that I thought summed it all up by, by Einstein that said, the intuitive mind is a gift and the rational mind is a faithful servant. And I thought that was right. so perfectly like balances that, that we're trying to understand a world that we all live in, that we don't make the rules for that over time. And he references a, a period like in the sixth century and then again in the 15th. And now we're kind of doing it again, where the left side, the more concrete, the squashing of the arts seems to be having its way a little bit and the arts and the right, right side will always kind of fight back a little bit but we live in a world that's de- determined in a lot of ways by just that just the the brain balance by the by the majority of humans who live at that time and so if we can understand the world that way and say oh well, yeah a lot of people that are a little more front left dominated currently believe that yeah. you got to do this and work all the time and own this and everything's got to be very concrete and very rigid and there's no room for silliness and art then if we can understand that a little bit, then I like that we get further into it and your sort of the things you're talking about of free will and how do you determine uh, where someone came from? And I think this might be the best entry to the question of like polyvagal theory is uh, we're talking about like understanding all that, (laughs) where you came from. Sorry, I just, I hope that we're still entering the question two hours from like two hours in. (laughs) Well, I I thought of, I think in the beginning I tried, I I had an idea of like a person, but now I thought of it more reasonably or maybe more in a, a better way to approach it that, because of all those things, the person who the bear that uh, goes and tries to eat its young, the the person in our world who, you know, the, the person building the dungeon or the person who's like harming children, I don't even know how we could begin to enter into that and understand that psychology. But the the concrete versus the more um, uh, artsy, for lack of a better term, there we can kind of understand that. We can see, yes, yeah, some people are just more 
built to kind of work really hard and have a job that like this is what the world is and other people just kind of want to play their mandolin all day and we understand those two types of people but now let's say there's a person that is consistently just getting irate at whatever reason yeah. it's fear whatever the basis of it is they're in traffic that may be a good one road rage they're honking their horn they're screaming at people they're on their way home from work and someone cut them off someone didn't let them into the light someone turned in front of them and caused them to miss a light and now they're enraged we're starting at their brain we're going into their body we're, we're determining that like they went this route what can we work backward to in their life to determine like where's that trauma coming from where why are you doing this do you need to take some deep breaths if prison does that it has people go to sort of rehab to work on anger management to to all right let's get to the base of why are you doing this and then it usually comes back to like my dad was a jerk or something like that like what does polyvagal theory try to get you to work back to or like a base from or how could you understand it so that you're in that situation and the person cuts in front of you and then you go oh i'm good i'm in a zen state Oh, how does it empower us? Yeah, yeah. How could you? Is it is it meant to be like a, a practice so that you could have one of those triggers where you're feeling fight or flight, you're feeling anger yeah. or something like that, and then you could use it as like a um, a technique? Is that what it, is that a way to describe it? Polyvagal theory. Uh, it's a lens for understanding human nature, um, what we need, how we're built what our roles with each other um, ideally might look like. Um, Gosh, those are such exciting questions. The biggest simple way to cut through, like you can throw out the chart with the spine and the organs, you can just ignore it. The biggest, the single biggest thing it tells us is that we, we are made for social engagement and that's really where we thrive. And that's hit like his big contribution to the conversation about these different neural circuits that govern our body's response to situations where we have these circuits that um, put us into fight and flight and put us into freeze. They also help us enter into the social engagement state, which is where we optimally, oh God, I've absorbed his language, (laughs) (laughs) which is where we really thrive. Like we are meant for each other. We are meant for connection. We are meant to connect. Um, We are constantly having this very deep conversation, nervous system to nervous system, which um, happens a lot through our faces and our voices. Um, so that we're constantly cueing each other, like I'm safe mm-hmm. and therefore probably there's no predators around. And then you're, you're, no, you're, you're welcome to come and join me and we can be safe together. Um, so that we really, we find safety and well being, and our nervous systems thrive and our, our, just our, everything thrives in that region. Like when, when we are in fight flight, there's all kinds of stress chemicals and cortisol and all of that. And our systems, you know, trying to just save our lives. So we're, you know, or when you go into shock, you, you know, you defecate because you're, you can't bother to digest anything. When you're in social engagement, you're able to do all of that um, bodily repair. He, he, poor just talks a lot about health and growth and restoration. And you're able to then also access um, creativity and 
higher levels of thought. I mean, we, we tend, we just, we, we tend to think of ourselves, God, I've really absorbed his language. The word that came to mind is isolates. We tend to think of ourselves as isolates. We tend to think of ourselves as just, you know, these like um, robots just, but you know, we're each different, but we're just these robots. We've got our programming and we're going to go, you know, conquer our lives. And that is that mentality of that left hemisphere, which I'm so excited that you understood so well. It makes it so much fun for me and, easy for me but right when as in when we're sort of more grounded in the way the left hemisphere processes the world we are living in a world of objects that and needing to go and manage everything and that right hemisphere is not just the world of art it's the world of context and relationship and meaning and mm-hmm. what is this about and it really you know to really sink into that world you have to really get in touch with your body because there's this flow of meaning and information and so much of right hemispheric experiencing of the world isn't through language the the left hemisphere is great at after you have an experience and you're trying to make meaning of it you put words to it but the thing that we do is we we confuse the words with the experience we confuse the the map for the territory and then we just start to live in this world of concepts so that you know if like and do ridiculous things where um we don't and we don't even see what's in front of us because we have a concept about what it's supposed to be or what we believe it is like mcgilchrist talks about a woman writing to him after reading his book and saying you know i was i had this very tragic thing happened where i was called into a morgue because my brother had died and uh i was brought in to say goodbye to him and they pulled him out and i felt him and he was still warm oh man and yeah so she ran out into the hallway and found a nurse and pulled her in and the nurse said well it says here on this paper he's dead so i assure you he's dead (laughs) and the woman you know the woman went uh i'm not having this argument left the nurse went and found a doctor he came in or he he or she i don't know the genders of the people involved they came back and uh did i think jump started the man's heart and actually the brother walked out of the hospital alive but the mentality in that moment, of course, is representative of that left hemispheric idea that because it says this on the paper, this is what's real. Mm-hmm. And in order to contact what's real, we have to show up in a way where we don't only have concepts, but we have that richer experience of these signals uh, of bodily sensation and feelings and things that are very hard to put into words. It's hard to even talk about what those things are telling us about the world but because we ignore them so much i think we're then able to do things that i mean it would be hard if we didn't have such a left shifted society for almost everybody we know to eat meat that was factory farmed because we're good people mm-hmm. and we love our pets and they're so similar to the animals that we allow to be tortured on our behalf uh, just to save money. So um, then what? I think there's a point to all that. <laughs> <laughs> What's the larger point? Oh, we're living in an artificial reality. We're living in a con- we are in the matrix, but we made it. We mm-hmm. collectively created a matrix where we are overlaying the real world with this artificial world and then interacting with it as if it's as if it's real. And in doing so, we're destroying the whole fucking planet. Yeah, but and we elected a sociopath president. This is the <laughs> this is the direct outcome of of ignoring Stephen Porges. 
So what do you think? I mean, because it, it seems like an ideology and any ideology can be latched on to. And then if there's... What, what's an ideology? That you like, I'm with Stephen Porges. He's my leader. <laughs> this is my guy. I've completely... I've just... I've just joined them. I've, <laughs> I've joined the religion. Yeah. <laughs> oh, David, you surprised me. I delight in this. Don't, <laughs> don't think alike. I'm so earnest. I like that you, you scratch at things. They're like, but, but is it really? Do we all, do we all need to go around talking about our journeys and authenticity and vulnerability? Can we just cut <laughs> the crap? Can we think for ourselves? Okay. Sorry. I'm sure. excited by the premise of your question. Well, it seems like, uh, it's it's a philosophy it's it's a way to live and then as with people do when they have an ideology is that this is the correct <laughs> one so there the way we farm our food the way we eat the, all the behaviors we do was that avoidable if because you anyone with an ideology would go, any ide, any ideology would go if we'd only just listen to me or my person or the, the mm. leader of my thing we'd be in a better spot right now mm. and so it it it's it, not that it ignores the, that what which is which is that like humans have evolved to this we've become this and it wasn't just one person we kind of all you know people had ele- certain elements of economic systems and or uh, philosophical drives ideas ideations that motivated them just different psychological and or uh, makeups, you know, you have people that are just extraordinarily driven. We have a person on the planet who has $120 billion and doesn't give much of it away. Fascinated by what kind of brain created that person, that sort of drive. And th- those are these sort of anomalies that exist in the world that are always sort of creating these tent poles that define the structure of like the paradigm that we live in. So I, that's why I meant by an ideology that like, oh, we'd be in a different spot if we'd only practiced this. And maybe there's right. some truth to that. If we had better mental health services throughout human history, there wouldn't have been someone that's like, I'll show you. Things like, oh, it seems like so much of human history has been defined by like, you'll see, just this vindictive, extraordinarily uh, aggressive and unrelenting desire to show somebody. I'll tell you. Yeah. Huh. I hadn't thought about all of that. I hadn't thought about Porges and relational neuroscience as being ideological. It's a very tiny camp of people. And probably the majority of them are therapists. And if it's an ideology, it's built around compassion. I think you might just, I wonder, I mean, it is uh, ideology. Well, I'm wondering if it, if, so if I'm a, if they're it's, a therapist, how would they prescribe it? How would they employ it? You know, how would they, to the road rage person or just the general person, what are they trying to get you in touch with? If you come in and say like, Hey, I'm struggling with this. I'm fearful of this, or I'm, I'm, I'm having cyclical thoughts. I'm having obsessive thoughts. I'm ha- you know, is it, is it meant to be like a treatment to get people more in touch with how to be their, their best self? Is that the Polyvagal idea? theory? Yeah. Um, I think it's meant to help people understand how we're wired and how we respond to events in ways that we can work more wisely with our sort of animal selves and with each other. Um, But I, 
I just, I'm struck by the ideology thing. I think that's fascinating. I think my sense is that you're just attuned to me and what I'm putting out and that I'm pretty vehement about it. Like I think, <laughs> I think I do have a sort of like crusading spirit and want to convert people to it. And it's a losing cause. I mean, I think I'm just, sensitive to if someone say like, if more people listen to and then insert name. So yeah. like when you said that, and then I was like, Oh, okay. Th- th- that triggers some sort of thinking of like, yeah, that that meant the ideology thing. Not so much. Well, if we had only listened to Steven, I mean, um, well, I think when I said that, I think there was a little bit of a spirit of hyperbole there. Um, but I guess, yeah, I guess that's, it's interesting that you picked up on that for me, because I think in a lot of ways, a lot of what Porges, Porges' theory, I mean, there, there's some specific, um, anatomical understandings and neurophysiological understandings that he has, but a lot of these more broad sort of insights or um, McGilchrist's, I think a lot of these insights don't require someone to have gone and studied neuroscience. Like a lot of aspects of these um, theories, when you apply them to how we live and what we sense and know about each other, um, they're, um, they're things that people who haven't studied neuroscience would have access to, you know, just people, observant people living in the world, perceptive people living in the world, they might um, come upon a similar sort of internal sense of like, we're not meant to be robots. We're not meant to be trying to control everything. I mean, like a lot of these ideas kind of show up in Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Uh, they show up in, and that, I mean, that was the, the, the source of my irritation with Ian McGilchrist was a lot of this shows up in a lot of, um, uh, feminist work but even also in like the novels of Le Guin like when I read Divided Brain I'm like this is what Le Guin is saying in this completely different way hey this is two podcasts not exactly in a row where Le Guin came up because I think like Cla- Kaplan mentioned Le Guin oh really I don't I remember so. that name but I, I wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me at all he's pretty up on on stuff he's he's a well-read individual yeah and uh, yeah, that was rather thrilling when he when he mentioned her because she for a long time was my favorite author, and I wrote to her when I was younger, and I got a letter back. It's very <laughs> special. Cool. But I think it's interesting because I think that is kind of um, the idea of it being an ideology and converting people to it. I think that might be me more than Steve Porges, or I don't know. It's hard for me to tell because I've just been immersed in this world because my mentor, Bonnie Badenoch, who is a trauma therapist and a neuroscience educator, knows Stephen, and a, a lot of his ideas inform her work. And I think there is this sense of uh, beleaguerment, being inside a society that is crazy and being trying, trying to get people to see what we're doing. Yeah. But I think from from my perspective, I mean, I've been trying to reform the world since I was 20 and I've had no success. I mean, I've been <laughs> <laughs> it's only the the bludgeoning hammers that do very rarely do, do people that are and uh, in, uh, in, and I think that, you know, referring to something as an ideology can be cast as like sort of a. Uh, like it's said in like a negative sense or something like that. But I think, you know, who wouldn't want there to be a world where people were more in touch with why they had their own behaviors and, you know, at least looked 
every so often inwardly to see if they could improve them or feel better about themselves or not lash out. You referenced the president who is someone that, you know, governors have to come over and be like, you're very pretty. You're the prettiest one. You're very pretty. All right. Anyway, guys, let's ignore this person. Let's do this on our own. They just have to appease this kind of desperate neediness that a person has and the outside world that sees this grotesque character responds by saying you're awful you're the worst i hate you it's negative on negative it would be a strange world if people saw that sort of desperate need and sadness and ineptitude and went hey man what's going on what's your story what can we work on here with you how can we improve you we don't have that sort of society and that seems pollyanna-ish to to wish that we did but yeah, yeah I, I I think that that's uh, an ideology that I mean I want the world to be a, a different way than it is and I and if if something like this is uh, an implement or a tool that can be implemented to to have people be a little more aware of what they're doing and why and getting to the root of it as opposed to just I don't know the world told me to do this and I'm going full speed ahead I'm I'm not even questioning it I'm just pushing down anything that raises a red flag or causes me to go, what? I just ignore it. Yeah, I would love for a world where people... uh, So I I still don't know that I fully understand polyvagal theory, but it seems like it's that, that trying to get people to... Is it trying to get people to do something or is it purely yourself? Like, is it a group? You mentioned therapists. Are they like, we're all polyvagal theorists or is it kind of like, oh, I implement it as a technique or is it just... how How do you define that? I think it's meant to broadly uh, inform how you understand human nature and how uh, like the drivers of why we do things and how we process the world. And, and based on that, um, how to be better therapists, how to be better teachers, how to be better parents, how to be better friends. I, uh, I feel terrified at the idea of trying to give like a three minute overview of it because it's so complex mm-hmm. like I don't know that I can do a great job of I think I think it, I think it's emerging as we speak I'm going to trust that this process of conversation will become clear I think if I tried to jump in and I could try but to just give a broad overview of it like I've heard so many people on different podcasts generally gorgeous but sometimes other people go in and and say well this is what polyvagal theory is and then 40 minutes later the host is like, okay, so uh, can we go into this other part? And then the person's like, but, no, there's like 10 more things I need to mention. <laughs> well, so like I, so, I am really but, interested in neuroplasticity. I think we've talked about that a little bit. And, and that I think now is being more widely accepted. Early on, it was looked at as kind of a fringe concept. Uh, but I, I would define it as the brain finding new paths and connections to relearn things maybe or or reconnect broken connections something as simple as that and that was a little jumbled but the general concept of that being that like if you suffer a stroke your brain could figure out a way to rewire itself within reason obviously the chances of getting back to 100 percent are slim but very high probability that you could regain much more than was commonly thought 10 years ago or even five years ago so that in a scientific sense, I guess, is definable or, or e- easy in some way to comprehend. This to me so far, I I don't know how I would describe it in a sentence or two beyond yeah. just like a, a self-help thought would be one and or two like a, a concept or a, 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 te- a practice. Uh, yeah, it's more a broad framework. Um, 
I think there are implications for self-help, but I think it's more a broad framework. Um, is, it a, is it more about understanding it or implementing it? Polyvagal theory, as Steve Porges has written about it and investigated it uh, since the 1960s, I think, um, I think is a f- more framework for understanding human beings. Um, I mean, there are applications and implications, um, especially for trauma, but um, yeah, I think... <clears throat> Hmm. I think I gosh I'm still I'm still caught in some other things that you were talking about like Trump and ideology I think it's <coughs> I think it's probably unfair to describe polyvagal theory or relational neuroscience as an ideology because well let's see like political ideologies are based on in some ways, unprovable things, right? Like, you have to have a leap of faith that this economic policy would be best, even though it's not demonstrable. Um, Relational neuroscience and polyvagal theory are built around um, science. Mm -hmm. And so they're mostly just descriptive. Uh, There are some prescriptions for how we might be in the world and how we might understand human nature that flow from that i will say i think you're not wrong i mean that in sensing an ideological vibe or at least it's like a a crusading vibe coming from me because i think that is like kind of how i think about i mean i just i i'm uh in most ways a fairly i would feel i feel kind of invisible and relatively powerless and so i think about these great ideas but um i think my urge to try to make a difference in the world way exceeds my reach. So I think that energy is me. I think that's me more than maybe that um, discipline. There might, I, I'm trying to think if it would be fair to say that like there's an ideological energy. I think, I don't think so. Okay. I mean, I think just, I think people who are drawn to these disciplines maybe have a different, you know, naturally have a different experience of the world or are aware of different things or are drawn to different values. Um, but anyway, that that isn't answering your question about what polyvagal theory is, but it felt important. <laughs> <laughs> well, how would it, so again, not, going back to the first question, because we need to uh, wrap up here pretty soon, but how, <laughs> how would you apply it to this? Is this is the best thing I've ever heard said on a podcast, David. <laughs> I say that all the time. Uh, How would you, so uh, like this is a trauma event. People are having all these questions uh, of uncertainty during this, you know, pandemic is a pretty big deal. How would polyvagal theory apply to it or be associated Uh with it? Or could it be useful to it? If any of those are um, relevant. Yeah. Well, luckily Porges has spoken about this recently, although I would, I would I was able to guess kind of the things you would say um I think that in a situation like this when we tend to get frightened um and to 
either move into a fight flight response of sympathetic activation and getting nervous and feeling worried and just sensing, a, you know, like a lot of anxiety or shutting down and just feeling overwhelmed. Um, I think it's important to um, have some awareness of what, where we're at um, and, um, and ways to get back to some kind of more balanced state of being and knowing that we are made for, for social engagement and social connection is helpful because there are, are ways that we can find safety with each other. And it doesn't even have to be other humans. It can be other mammals um, that like, for instance, um, I heard Tony Thaxton recently got a dog. Yeah. I think that was, a, would be a, a, a brilliant polyvagal choice to make that if you're alone and I think he, he uh, got divorced recently, you're recovering from a divorce. You're living alone inside of a pandemic going and getting a dog, especially, you know, assuming you can take care of it for the long term. But that seems like a brilliant choice that that's super grounding. I mean, just imagining Tony going and getting a dog. I feel better. (laughs) (laughs) No, I can feel, I can feel like, I can feel like my body kind of grounding and centering and I can feel like just imagining that. And, um, and that, that is another thing that is helpful is, is um, having lots of images of connection. Um, Especially if, you know, I think, of all the stuff on social media, some of the things that are better for our nervous systems are videos of animals Mm -hmm. Um, and any kind of thing that engages that social engagement system. So any kind of um, face-to-face, voice-to-voice connection. Um, Portis has talked about that it's much better to to Skype or to Zoom or to get on the phone. That those, those are things that really activate those systems in us, whereas text tends to be much more it's just much different to pick up on cues and settle in together yeah um and so and then other things he talks about doing um slow exhalations uh that's a big one um that when as we breathe in we activate the sympathetic nervous system but as we breathe out especially if we breathe out slowly that helps engage the parasympathetic and especially in a way that's more um, uh, the good kind of calming because we have the calming where you go into shutdown and that's um, more challenging for our bodies to just go into this sort of like freeze response where everything's overwhelming and horrible to calm down in that kind of healthier way that diagram way where you go to the to the green side so that you're you know you're um, relaxing into safety um, and I think those are the main ones that are coming to mind. Yeah, just that voice. And I think on the spectrum of things, I think active engagement tends to be more calming for our bodies. But there are times where, you know, we don't like there's people who don't really feel safe with other people. So he'll, he'll advise like listening to music because that engage that system. And I think listening to podcasts also I, I think can listening see that. to podcasts is healthy for us. Good. Well, you heard you know, it here especially first, folks. With grounded people, you know, people who aren't agitated, who aren't talking about politics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, things that, uh, even if you heard a very soothing voice, but they were having a conversation about something that just made you agitated, that wouldn't be good. Right, right. 
You want to hear a soothing voice talking about something pleasant. And hopefully fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think I found, I mean, I've listened to thousands of hours of podcasts over the last decade and I find it really connecting. Uh, yeah. I, I, you know, you, you kind of go into this zone where it's, uh, I don't know. Um, where it, I don't, it feels like a very different medium than television. And it feels, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like, I don't know. It's different than friendship. Mm-hmm. obviously because you don't these people don't talk back to you um which reminds me of when you came to boise and you brought the beautiful and smart and sweet emily rose mm-hmm. i mentioned that i once fell asleep listening to a professor blastoff episode and had a dream where i was hanging out with a you know a, a table of friends and nobody would let me get in a word edgewise <laughs> That was that was the the whole concept of that show. We wanted everyone to feel just like that. <laughs> well, Heidi, Jennifer, this way. Oh, go ahead. Uh, I don't know. I think there's a way that that all connects to the larger questions we're discussing, um, but I'm not sure what it would be. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe none of us are, or will ever be. We'll see. I like the pursuit, though. And I like the um, the the notion of polyvagal theory. I don't know that I'll ever fully understand it, but I'm going to dig into <laughs> it more and try to try to get a, a grasp on it. I appreciate you uh, sharing some insight into it, and um, and, <laughs> and not, not exactly what it is or what it could do for it's, you, but it's the unknowable related to it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I appreciate it. And um, hi to Paul, and thanks for um, spending and sharing some time. Any uh, things you want to plug? thoughts anything like that oh sure oh god well i i hope i did an okay job i prepared so hard for this david i can't even tell you <laughs> oh well, thank you um i yeah um well if people want to hear the episode you did for my podcast um they can find it by it's on buzzsprout and it's i think the shorthand is heidi makes a po 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 <laughs> but the easiest way to find it is to go on Facebook. Okay. Heidi makes a podcast, podcast, podcast. Um, if they want to send reassuring messages to me that they gained something from this and it wasn't incomprehensible, I'm Heidi Juniper on Facebook. Um, I am working on a course where I actually do um, describe some of these things in a tight package. So, um, you know what? If your listeners are interested in actually understanding polyvagal theory, um, I will make that section of the course free for them. Oh, okay. If they just contact me and let me know they they would like to read that, um, yeah, I will make that free for them. And um, let's see, I'm also doing, on my podcast, I'm doing a thing where I'm offering free Zoom sessions with people to learn a process called focusing, which is about connecting with that right hemisphere, connecting with the body and learning to kind of listen to um, this inner wisdom, but purely in an ideological fashion. <laughs> with an yeah, of course. <laughs> well, cool. So, um, and I'm, I was, I made it, so I was going to do three free sessions for anybody who listens to my podcast. So I'll do three, three for anyone who listens to yours, meaning three, one session with three people okay. or if only one person uh, hits me up then I'll give them all three cool 
All right, we'll take uh, take Heidi up on that. Get in polyvagal theory. Uh, <laughs> if, hopefully, it um, appeals to you. Hopefully, you understand it, and um, <laughs> definitely going to research it more. I can't communicate about it. I swear, I can. <laughs> I I think I I get a sense of what it is. I'm going to look into it more. I am fascinated by it. I like when I learn new terms. I've never really heard that before. So now that's a new one. I'm going to throw out whenever we can go convene um with our friends again i'm going to ask people if they're familiar with it and get their yeah two cents but well and I, I really i really try to approach this with i mean i have uh, pages of notes but <laughs> i and i have i have one page here to just oh wow yeah of all the of all the big hits but it's so complex i was like you know what i'm just gonna follow david wherever he wants to go and um and just try to trust whatever emerges from this conversation. But I'm not sure that I succeeded in answering your opening question. I, it was it was a, a tough one, and if nothing else, a very ambiguous one. So I blame myself. But oh, um, oh that's very nice of you. But I, no, I appreciate your time and um, stay safe during this. And um, I will look more into polyvagal theory. And I hope that uh, <laughs> the people it, it, all in Boise are healthy and safe during this. And um, well, thanks, Dave. Yeah, this was lovely. I hope you guys are well. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for making the time. Sure. All right. See ya. All right. Take care, Dave. Bye. Well, what'd you think? Did you understand it? Maybe I sounded sort of obtuse in that one. I apologize if I did. I think I got the gist of it. I'm going to, like I said, look into it more. Polyvagal theory. Um, hopefully that in some way was helpful in uh, in, in the, the, the processing and um, whatever this is that we're all going through. The ability to stay active, stay engaged, stay uh, ambitious, optimistic, whatever it would be. I hope that... Uh, there's some tools that you can employ to do just that. Apologies to Dan for not knowing that that's who she was referencing. Of course she would. She's listened to the show. I think I was just sensitive to it because I we have some friends whenever we go over to their house, which has been going on for years now, uh, where the my friend's wife, right as we're leaving, so it's always in a situation where I don't have the opportunity to say, oh, excuse me. It's always like where as we're leaving out the door, she'll be like, all right, Dan. And then we, then the door closes, and then I turn, and I'm like, did she call me Dan again? And uh, so I'm sort of, I guess I'm just somewhat sensitive to that, and that's why I thought that maybe Heidi had confused me with someone else in her life. I don't know. But Dan Pritchard, who's a vital part of this podcast, you know that if you listen, down in Australia, putting it together, uh, assembling it from the goodness of his heart, and we're sending, as always, positive thoughts to him and his wife, Ashley. Uh, going through chemo treatment for brain cancer. We're sending just some good energy in that direction. This is difficult enough in being in a pandemic without having a major health crisis. So uh, if you have a spare moment to just think fondly of someone who listens to a similar show that you do, maybe you'll do that. And maybe uh, you can send some of that to Jean Hosbot as well, who her mastectomy was successful. She's up and walking around, and we'll keep uh, updates on that. But Jean, we're thinking about you as well. We've got a good team here in this little, tiny little isolated cave out in the middle of nowhere. But it's time to adjourn this episode. And I thought we would do, I don't, I mean, who knows how many of these we're going to have to do during the course of this as so many uh, artists and just people in our lives get uh, swept away by this stupid uh, virus that is has no discretion. 
it's just going to attach to whoever. And um, I was really hoping that this person would pull through because it, uh, when the news came out, I felt like people, especially through Twitter and stuff, were like, don't you dare. Don't you dare, COVID-19. Don't you even think of taking John Prime from us. And then, of course, it happened, which is awful. But if I'm honest, um, I, I'm not like a super fan. I knew several songs. It's probably, I'm just one of those people that knew like the hits. I have some of them that I really love. But he's always one of those people to me, and maybe you have this too, where you're like, one day I'm going to get real into them or I'm going to explore them a little further. Not now. Don't feel like I'm ready yet. And I don't know why. I just sometimes do that with artists of whatever different medium that might be. And John Prine was one of those. Tom Waits is kind of another one for me where I keep thinking like, I'll get really into it. I know a handful of songs that I like, but one day maybe I'll really dive in and know all the albums. But there's something I, I like about that with artists and that it's they're always in a sort of Schrodinger's cat state. They're always sort of gone until you discover them. And then they're fully alive again and you dig through their work. And then if you're lucky enough that you exist at the same time as them and you can go take part in the, in what they're doing, go see them live and be like, I was there when they were doing that. That's so weird. It's almost as if you got to come back and live again a couple hundred years later and you'd hear kids, you know, sneaking off and be like, I'm cool or my brother's really cool, and I have this record, and you'd, you'd be, there'd be a smile on your face of like, oh, that's amazing. This kid is cool because they have a John Prine record. I mean, I was alive then, kid. But maybe you're a ghost in this scenario. I don't know why you're there. Maybe you've lived another life, and you come back and you remember the previous one where you were alive at the same time as people who left a mark. But I love that about art, that People are always kind of alive and always kind of dead. It just it just depends on when you find them. If you were someone that really felt connected while John Prine was alive, th- this uh, cannot be an easy time. And I, I I feel for you. And I wish that people we all had better uh, words to say to each other in these situations. I feel like we're going to have to really work on that. Uh, we can't just say sorry to hear about your loss, as a lot of people are prone to do. But I'm sorry that uh, an artist who you were enjoying the journey with was taken away before it felt like a logical conclusion to that journey. I guess that's how all of them go. And here I am saying the word journey when I said in this episode that I, I don't like it. Uh, if nothing else, this, this pandemic has brought out a, a lot of hypocrisy in me. Guys, let's get out of here. I chose this song because it's just sweet. It's sad. Might make you a little emotional. Who knows? But it's just, it, to me, it, inca- it captures and encompasses so much of what I associate with John Prine. Just this very, like, I think of the word oak. Like, just sturdy. And, so, and this song references trees. But uh, there's something just very authentic. And, like, a very, when we think of Americana, just this, like, you can trust that. That's what we want to aspire to be. Earnest, self-effacing, honest. Uh, dependable, forthright, all these terms that kind of define that genre of music and a certain thing that we like to think of that did exist, and hopefully it did, but we know that John Prine did exist, and luckily this song does as well, and I hope you like it. Here's Hello in There from John Prine. Thanks for stopping by the Space Cave. We had an apartment in the city Me and Loretta like living there 
Well, it's been years since the kids had grown A life of their own Left us alone John and Linda Living in Omaha And Joe is somewhere On the road We lost Davy In the Korean War And I still don't know what for Don't matter You know that old trees just grow stronger And old rivers grow wilder every day Old people just grow lonesome Waiting for someone to say Hello in Talk much more. She sits and stares through the back door screen. And all the news just repeats itself like some forgotten dream that we've both seen. Someday I'll go and call up Rudy. Together at the factory What could I say If he asked what's new Nothing what's with you Nothing much to do You know that old trees Just grow stronger And old rivers Grow wilder Just grow lonesome Waiting for someone to say Hello in there So if you're walking Down the street sometime Spot some hollow Ancient eyes Don't just pass them by and stare As if you didn't care 